Um, okay, tov. Let's uh, let's begin. Erev tov. We are in our Vezrat Hashem, our final class of Kol Bodi Dofeik, of Soloveitchik's seminal essay on religious Zionism, a, an essay, a talk that he gave in 1956 related to current events in Israel, the Holocaust, grief, loss, tragedy, uh, hearing the knocks of Hakadosh Baruch Hu knocking on our door, waiting for our response, and uh, he's really, um, really. Um, tread on many different topics, like he's, he's addressed many different issues. Last week we spoke about two different primary topics, how the covenants of fate and destiny, Brit, Goral, and Brit Yud, also affect Jewish conversion. There are two parts of Jewish conversion. A connection to, call it Jewish peoplehood, a connection to Jewish fate, a connection to Jewish um, uh, suffering, in a sense, okay, or Jewish community, okay, but also a connection to our, our aspirations, our religious desires, our religious ideals. And that's the breed of, uh, of, if someone just wants to close that window, because the air conditioning is on, if you don't mind. And that's the breed uh, Yehud. And so conversion has two aspects to it. It has the breed Milah and Tefillah, men do circumcision, and both men and women also Tovel and the Mikvah. And that is, uh, and those are the, that captures the two different aspects of Tefillah, Nachon, which the Jewish people also did on Har Sinai. That was one topic from last week. A second, to- second topic from last week was the Rav's view of Amalek. Amalek is not just a, it started as a particular people, but then it evolved into a, uh, into a category, into a conceptual category, meaning it's anyone who tries to destroy the Jewish people. And, uh, and this mitzvah then has um, longevity even well beyond the uh, extinction of anyone who's known any Amalek. We don't know, and no one here says, oh yeah, I met an Amalek on Facebook today, or you know, schmoozing with someone, and they said, oh, they're from Amalek, you know. This person grew up in Argentina, and this person grew up in uh, South Africa, and this person's from uh, New Zealand, oh, this person's from Amalek. No, no one's ever met someone from Amalek. And yet, and yet, based on the Rambam, and this is the Rav, you know, articulates a view based on his father, of Moshe Soloveitchik, who reads the Rambam very carefully to suggest that it appears like the nations of the world, the Canaanim, have ceased to exist. Amalek still exists. How does Amalek still exist? Never seen them before. They also got mixed around during the dispersions of Sancheir of Melech Ashur. No one has the identity of an Amaleki today. Clearly then, Amalek is an idea. Exactly, they have the characteristics, even though they don't have the biology or the genetics of uh, of Amalek, and that's exactly the point. Amalek is anyone who wants to destroy us. Hitler was Amalek. Stalin was Amalek. We got a lot of Amaleks. A lot of people contending to be Amalek. Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran and you know, a lot of, a lot of these bad guys. And yes, there are of the world, all Amalek according to according to Reb Selavich. Okay. Now, chapter eleven, final chapter of Kol Dodi Dofek. Now, in this chapter, the Rav addresses the following topic. He addresses, and there are quite a few notes. Uh, yeah, this chapter is relatively short, besides for the notes afterwards. The vision of the religious Zionist movement, loneliness and separateness. What should be the relationship of religious Zionism to its secular counterpart? Now we get to the fundamental question. How do we relate to secular Zionism? How do we relate to a government that's not religious, that's not that deep? How do we relate to a David Ben-Gurion type figure who mastered Tanakh? was very knowledgeable, who was deeply, you know, the, the Jewish pride was flowing through his veins, I mean, you know, and, and he was deeply connected to, to Judaism, Jewish values, but not an observant Jew, not a typical, uh, just closing the door, not your typical Shabbat observant Jew, 
And how do we relate to a Herzl? And how do we relate to a Moshe Dayan? How do we relate to, you know, with generally, you know, secular political Zionist movement, um, you know, which doesn't necessarily share with us our Torah values, but we certainly admire, appreciate, are thankful for the many things that they've accomplished. Okay, and we are part of the project that they, you know, really, really uh, initiated. You wish that the secular Jews would be as we would take what? What would we take? Okay, so so that's so that's getting to the next question. Number one is how 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 are we supposed to look at secular Zionism then versus secular Zionism today? And one can make the case that there's a difference between these two things. Agree or disagree? Secular Zionists, especially in the time of Herzl and Ben Gurion and the creation of the state. There, there is a real core set of values there, okay? Very strongly held values. Some that we disagreed with, but like, as an ideology, uh, there's a hashkafah. Today, um, we live in a world of less ideology, in general. Israel, everywhere. You know, people are glued to their phones. They're just sort of enjoying life or trying to, you know, stay afloat. Ideology is not quite what it used to be, Okay. A very good example of this is, uh, you just you see like Russia, for example. When, when communism began, it was an ideology. There's a whole Ashkafa, a whole... Now, the Russia of today is, is neither a democracy, just like the Soviet Union wasn't a democracy. But it's just, today it's just about economic interests and power. And, you know, so the Russia of today, they're not like these communist values of, you know, equality and, you know, no one should own... Everything belongs to the state, which, you know, there's no such, there's no ideology. It's just interests, okay? It's power and ego and money and, and you know, and et cetera. And so th- this is the world that we're living in today. Um, and, you know, so, so should our viewpoint shift to today, okay? Um, that's an interesting and important question to ask. But let's see first what Rav Soloveitchik said then, and then we can see how we can apply some of these ideas now. It seems to me that political secular Zionism has failed by virtue of one basic error. It is based on a false assumption that was introduced into the covenant of Egypt, the covenant of fate. Secular Zionism asserts that with with the founding of the state of Israel, we became a people like all other peoples, and that the force of, it is a people that shall dwell alone, as quoted in this this parasha, parasha Balak, am nevadad yishkon, was diminished. Okay, so now we're going back to these categories. Covenant of fate, covenant of destiny. Secular Zionists argued, once we have a state, the covenant of fate will no longer be in existence. We'll be accepted by the world. We're going to be like everyone else. Niek ka'am kekol And how's that working for us? Yeah, so that's what Rav Soloveitchik is saying in 1956. It's all the more true today. Now what Rav Soloveitchik is going to argue is that the covenant of fate is a metaphysical reality in good times and bad times, whether we have a state or don't have a state, whether the Hitlers are in power or the, you know, or the, uh, uh, the, the Nasrallahs are in power. It doesn't matter, okay? This is a reality of Jewish peoplehood that transcends particular political realities. The extremists in the movement want to eradicate the idea of the shared fate, the community and nation of the Jews of the diaspora with the Jews of the land of Israel. This train of thought is not only philosophically and historically erroneous, it is mistaken practically. What the Rav is saying is that the Jewish people are bound to each other in a way that transcends 
any particular events. This is true of Jews in the diaspora, Jews in Israel. This is true Jews who are living in a Jewish state and Jews not living in a Jewish state. There is something that binds us, and that is our covenant of faith, which began in Mitzrayim, which has to do with the fact that any Jew has a label on their head to some degree, for better or for worse. Okay, and we have this metaphysical reality. In adhering to the notion of equality with all peoples and unity with all, the representatives of the state of Israel have on many occasions showed themselves to be extremely naive. So naivete. They have failed to properly evaluate specific circumstances and conditions and have not correctly understood the hidden motives of certain persons. Out of a childlike naivete, they put stock in people who later betrayed us and have been inordinately moved by smooth talk and flattery. I'm not quite sure who specifically he's referring to here. To my mind, in several instances, Israel's foreign policy has lacked a sense of self-respect, national pride, prudence, and the strength to stand by its principles. Maybe he's referring to taking money from Germany in the 1950s when Israel was going bankrupt. Yeah, it was a big debate between Ben-Gurion and, uh, and, uh, and Begin. I, I'm not quite sure exactly what he's referring to, but... He says, sometimes we are smooth-talked into believing that we could just get along with everyone, kumbaya, everyone will love us, and things are going to change in the way they were the last 3,000 years. These mistakes are outgrowths of the primary error made by secular Zionism when it wished to erase both the feeling of isolation and also the phenomenon of shared suffering from our history books. Again, secular Zionists focus on Jewish strength, Jewish might. Yom HaShoah V'Hagvura. And they didn't want to talk about Jewish suffering. But Jewish suffering is an integral part of the picture. It's a part of our history. We didn't choose it, but it's a reality. And you can't deny that. And they wanted to erase that feeling of isolation. I mean, if you just think about it, that the way that we jumped into socialism, you know that in many kibbutzim, they had pictures of Stalin up on the walls? For years, still? Stalin. I don't know if still. I don't know if anyone who has pictures of Stalin still on the walls. That's pretty crazy today. In the 1950s, this was common. Again, there was like an identification with universal communist values, okay? And a naivete. I mean, Stalin goes on to kill millions of people and many, many Jews. But you could just argue that there wasn't a left identity in Israel. And they said it was a, you needed to identify with something. Maybe this was seen as the archetypal type of um, program that they wanted to run. Yeah, this was before Stalin became the no, this is in the 1950s. I think Stalin's. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Not sure how much they knew. I don't know. But uh, the point is, there's a certain naivete out of a desire to remove the covenant of faith, to assume that we could just be like everyone else. Yeah, social, the, the main thing is there were a lot of them were proper, proper socialists. The beckoning of the beloved must open the eyes of all of us, even the most confirmed secularists. The state of Israel was not and will not be able to abrogate the covenant and I will take you unto me as a people and put an end to shared fate, the source of Jewish aloneness. Wow, this is prophetic. This is prophetic. I wish it weren't. It's not that I wish it weren't. I wish Durban too hadn't happened. I wish the second intifada and the first intifada and I wish wish that, that, that we wouldn't still be isolated on the world stage and still be hated on the left and the right. I wish. But this is true. Anti-Semitism has most certainly not gone away since the creation of Medinat Israel. Okay? Now, I'll share with you 
an interesting irony on the other side of the political uh, sort of spectrum. I used to learn in the West Side Kolel. The West Side of Manhattan was right across the street from our first apartment when we got married. And uh, I used to really like learning there. And all these guys, they were from Lakewood, BMG, real Haredi guys, good guys. I liked learning with them. I used to argue with them also. But uh, I stood up for our religious Zionist values. But, and, and one of them, my chavrut, who I was very close with and I really liked very much, he shared with me his Rosh Yeshiva's view. His Rosh Yeshiva was one of the Rosh Yeshiva and Yeshiva Brisk, there were a number of Yeshiva Brisk in, in Me'asharim. And his view was, you know, he would sort of whisper this because he sort of like, wasn't clear whether he agreed with it or not, but you know, how could he disagree with his Rosh Yeshiva? He said, well, you know, if Medinat Yisrael didn't exist, there wouldn't be all this anti-Semitism. That's why there's still a lot of anti-Semitism in the world. Because, you know, they don't like Israel, and that's why. But if that didn't exist, it wouldn't, you know, look how many Jews have been killed because of Israel. 25,000 Jews. And, and I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, look how many Jews were killed before Israel was existed. Six million Jews from 1939 to 1945, and 25,000 Jews killed between 1945 and in 2023. Every Jew counts. These are not just numbers. Every person's a whole world. No doubt, but, I mean, come on, like, no historical perspective. That's quite similar to this view. Right? There's this naivete. It's almost like, well, it's like this assumption that we could undo the covenant of fate if we only didn't do one thing the non-Jews didn't want us to do. No. In this case, it's having a state or in, uh, or, you know, having a state or, or not having a state, right? Either of these, either of these two things. The secular Zionists believe that by having a state will accomplish this. The, you know, religious right in this case, the Haredi perspective is if we didn't have a state, we'd accomplish this. And the Rebbe is saying, no, neither of these two things are true. Have a state, don't have a state. Jewish aloneness. Ger v'toshav anochim achem Abraham is a metaphysical reality that cannot be undone or changed. It just is. We have to embrace it and be proud of it. Yeah? A state came into existence, the came into existence because of all the anti-Semitism. Exactly. The people then talked to us, we need a place that's just for us. Correct. Correct. The state of Israel, okay, fine. And, and the state of Israel is as isolated today as the community of Israel has been during the thousands of years of its existence. And that's true. And perhaps the isolation of the state is more pronounced than in the past because it is so clearly revealed in the international arena. It's quoting from Psalms chapter 83. They plot with craft against your people and take counsel against your treasured ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. For they have consulted together with one consent against you, do they make an alliance, the clans of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Geval, Ammon, and Amalek, Pelishtia, with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria, two joins forces with them. They give support to the children of Lot, Selah. Okay, they're always conspiring against us. Kamen is Russia, together with the Vatican, Nehru, the student of Gandhi, together with the devoutly Catholic Franco and the British Foreign Office with, with Chiang Kai-shek have all joined in the attempt to isolate Israel and are being assisted by Israel's other enemies in other lands. This conspiracy began specifically after the establishment of the state at a time when many of Israel's leaders thought that the Jewish problem had been solved, that Jewish isolation had been eradicated and normality had been introduced into our existence. The assumption that the state of Israel has weakened anti-Semitism is erroneous. On the contrary, anti-Semitism has grown stronger and employs false charges against the state of Israel in the war against the soul. Who can foresee the end of this anti-Semitic hatred? 
The covenant of Egypt cannot be abrogated by human hands. We remain a scattered people, nonetheless attached one to another. Our fate is the fate of the Yeshuv, and conversely, the fate of the Yeshuv is our fate. No segment of the Jewish nation will delude itself by fleeing to the palace of the king more than all the Jews. Everyone must pray for his friends. An American Jew must not be silent and rest until the danger in which the state of Israel finds itself is removed and passes. The inhabitants of the Holy Land should not be babbled about the new Jew that has been fashioned there. One has no connection, one who has no connection with the Asper Jewry. We are all obligated to listen to the clarion call of the beckoning beloved. Because no one can, can be silent in this moment. American Jews have to recognize they're in it together with Israeli Jews. Israeli Jews need to recognize they're in it together with American Jews. These are the same phenomena. And it, I'll tell you, it's very disturbing. Because I'll give you an example of what's happening in America today. I see on the left and the right. All the Orthodox Jews are crying about, and justifiably so, about the anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism on the left. There's a lot of anti-Zionism coming from the left in America today. And all the Orthodox Jews, look at this, this person and that person, and, uh, and they're right about it. And all the people on the left are calling about the anti-Semitism on the right in America. The, the KKK and all the people that that certain presidents have sort of given a platform to, and they're crying about that. And they're all, and both of these sides, the liberal American Jews and Orthodox Jews, are seeing right past each other, because they don't realize that those on the right and the left are anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist. And they keep saying, well, it's, no, it's those on the left. No, it's those on the right. No, it's both. And so instead of joining forces together and recognizing that we are in this together, Jews on the left and the right. We, we're Jews, and that's it. This is a reality that we cannot undo. We just have to embrace, essentially. They're, they're fighting with each other. Yeah, and they're critiquing each other. I recently read something about that in the news yeah. about the, the secular Jews really fighting against the Haredim. Okay, that's another topic for discussion. But, uh, but this is the... This is a major, major problem. Okay, I'm just uh, I'm just plugging in my charger here, okay, so that we can we don't lose the. Uh, what would happen if we reverse? So it's not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, yeah, that's a really good idea. Sorry, just leave over. Just you just swap swap. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay, so the. This is the, uh, and the rub is, is prophetic in this regard. It is 100% correct that nothing is changing in terms of this metaphysical reality. Okay? Now, so what do we need to do about it? We need to respond to the call of the beloved, right? God is knocking at our door. We need to step up our, our game. Still, the error of the secular Zionists is graver than just not understanding the true meaning of the covenant of Egypt. The covenant of a nation can realize through shared faith and forced isolation. They also sin against the covenant of Sinai, the covenant of the sacred community and people that finds expression in the shared destiny of a sanctified life. So they misunderstand the covenant of Egypt, of faith, and they also don't embrace the covenant of destiny, of living a life of sanctity, of true Jewish ideals. Only religious Zionism with its traditional and authentic perception has the power to repair the perverted. 
Okay, so ah, so now religious Zionism has the right balance. Religious Zionism, on the one hand, is a, a historical recognition of the 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 breed of, of fate and destiny. That's the only only true option. If you were to ask me how the role of the state of Israel can best be described, I would answer that its mission is not to nullify the special loneliness of the community of Israel or to destroy the unity of its faith. And this will not succeed. But to raise the people of the encampment to the level of a sacred community nation and to turn shared fate into shared destiny. You know, one of the fundamental questions is, have we reached like a new state in Jewish history? And in some sense, the rabbi is saying we haven't. We haven't. The same rules that applied in Middle Ages, modern times, politics, they still apply today. That we are an Amravatanishko. We are a distinct nation, separate from everybody else. Okay? And that cannot be that cannot be changed. And our only option, what we really need to do is stand up. To the, uh, to the to the task of the moment and turn shared faces to shared destiny. We have to, you know, sort of um, sort of um, gather around and embrace a shared vision of Torah Judaism. Okay? We must remember, as we've already emphasized, that fate is expressed in essence of the experience of life under Juris. In an inability to run away from Judaism and be forced to suffer as a Jew. This though is not the ideal of the Torah over our Velta John. Our solidarity with the community of Israel, according to an authentic Jewish outlook, must not come from the conclusion of the covenant of fate, that of the encampment nation possessed of the compelled existence to which we are subjugated by outside forces, but by the conclusion of a covenant with the sacred community nation of shared destiny. Let us not let's not let external forces define us. Let's define ourselves by shared values. Right? We don't want to be like the, the camp. In the, in the desert because of outside invaders that we join together. We want to share something together, build something together based on shared values. We care about each other together. Yeah. Man does not find the experience of fate satisfying. On the contrary, it causes him pain. The feeling of isolation is very destructive. It is the power to crush man's body and spirit, silence his spiritual powers, and stop up the wellsprings of his inner creativity. The feeling of isolation in particular troubles man because he's devoid of reason and direction. The isolated person wanders for whom and for what. Isolation which cleaves to man like a shadow shakes his awareness and ability. So just having a shared faith identity, it doesn't work. It's not enough for us. It doesn't give us guidance. An existence of destiny which is based on the covenant of the Sinai is different. This concept turns the notion of a nation concept that denotes an ordained existential necessity, participation in blind pain and the feeling of isolation devoid of meaning into a sacred people and to the elevated station of a moral religious community. Man draws from its strength and sustenance creative power and a renewed joy in an existence that is free and rejuvenated. It's like, why would somebody just want to join a, a people who are just experiencing suffering and pain and tragedy, right? I mean, I, we could think about this educationally. You know, let's talk about the Holocaust in Jewish education. My father told me growing up, there were like three, two or three values that were really emphasized in his Jewish education. Number one, don't let Hitler win. Don't interact. 
Don't let Hitler, Hitler win. And they Su support, uh, yeah, support the state of Israel. Do it for the state of Israel. Now, there's, a, there's an absolute truth to what, you know, this message, no doubt. And Emil Fackenheim, what we've been a reformed theologian, you know, is famous for saying there's a 614th mitzvah in the Torah. Don't intermarry. Don't give Hitler a posthumous victory. Don't intermarry. I once gave it to our Torah here on Friday night. The 614th mitzvah of the Torah is, is Kedoshim Tihu. Kedoshim Tihu, according to the Ramban, includes, it, it really is about aspiring to a, a life of sanctity beyond the 613 mitzvah of the Torah. It goes well beyond just not intermarrying. It, don't intermarry. Do whatever you want for the first 25 years of your life. And then when it's time to start dating, you know, don't, don't end up marrying that non-Jewish girl that you met in college. Make your mom happy and, and marry the Jewish girl instead. Uh, come on. It's not enough. Not enough. Live a life of Kiddusha. Okay. It's much, much thicker, much more meaningful. So, you know, we sometimes have to be careful about how we use the Holocaust. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not critiquing... I'm not saying, oh, we overuse it. I'm not going that far to say, oh, the Holocaust has been manipulated and say huge education. I'm not saying that. Some people do say that. I'm not saying that. But you have to realize that for many people, if you're talking about all the negative stuff, the covenant of fate, and you don't balance that out with a positive, affirming Jewish identity filled with joy and love and Torah and mitzvot and chiyas and life and, and, and exuberant. Why, is it, why would a person stay you know, be part of this? Like, what's in it for them? And every time they come to the shul, the rabbis the Holocaust, the Holocaust. You know, they want to kill us. All they want to do is kill us. They want to kill us. I don't want to be part of these people. I'll be part of another people that they don't want to kill. Right? And then in, in this worst tip as Zionism was, was removing that weak, pathetic native. Correct. And replacing it with strength and courage. Correct, but the Rev is saying it's not, it's not, it's not enough. It's not enough. I mean, in another, there's a sort of a different shade of this, okay, slightly different factor. I remember an edu uh, some teacher once saying, you know, it's like I can't blame a reformed Jew for intermarrying or for not being connected to Judaism. I'm not saying all reformed Jews are not connected to Judaism, I'm not saying that, but many are not, that's the reality, it's like I can't blame them. They got so little in their Jewish education, it's not, why would you want to be... Why is that inspiring? <laughs> the very watered-down form of Judaism. Be cultural Jew? Okay, it could be cultural uh, something else. Yeah, I know about that. Why, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's not enough. It's not meaty enough. It's not... Give me something to bite my teeth into. Give me something that, that, that fills me up. And that's what the Rebbe is saying, that secular Zionism not only misunderstood the covenant of fate, also mis. Has, has failed to embrace the covenant of, of destiny. Okay? Now, to connect this a little bit to today, I have to say, you know, I know there's a lot going on in terms of uh, this whole debate about judicial reform. I don't want to get into that piece. But I, I'm happy to see, at least, a lot of idealism, you know, going out to the streets on the left. Whether I agree with it or disagree with it, I'm not talking about that right now. That's a good thing. It's a sign of caring about something. The worst thing is apathy. Apathy is the death of everything. At least you care about something. You're willing to be passionate. You're willing to go out to the streets. You're willing to commit time and energy to something. Okay, we could agree or disagree about what that end goal is. That's a good thing. Okay, it's a good thing. You know, that there's, that there's 
that there's a, a life, there's a, there's, a, there's a passion, there's a conviction. Again, even if I would much prefer an ideological Ben-Gurion to an apathetic, you know, secular you know, Zionist, just like, okay, just, I want to make a lot of money, so I'll go to New York, I can make more money there than in Tel Aviv or in San Francisco, so I'll just go there. I'm saying it's not even a question for me. It's, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and that's, um, no, despite, of course, the Rebbe saying that secular Zionists th- didn't understand Jewish destiny fully, but, but at least, you know, Jew- Ben-Gurion was a, was a knowledgeable Jew, very knowledgeable Jew. It's a good thing. He understood a lot about Jewish history. He understood Tanakh, even if he had a different view of it. So the um, man draws from its, str- um, from its strength and sustenance, creative power, and a renewed joy in an existence that is free and rejuvenated. Let's return to what we said above. How does destiny differ from fate? In two respects. Fate means a compelled existence. Destiny is existence by volition. It's a choice. Destiny is created by man himself who chooses and makes his own way in life. Fate is expressed in a teleological sense, in a denuded existence, whereas destiny embodies purpose and objectives. There's something about choosing. Destiny is about choosing. Anything you do by choice instead of being compelled is a lot more meaningful, right? In a perfect world, we would have a total separation of religion and state in Israel, and yet every Jew would choose a firm way of life. They would choose to get married by the Rebbeinut, and they would choose to convert up Yalacha, and they would choose to eat kosher, and they would choose to, to not drive much about That would be the perfect world, right? What's the concern? The concern is that if we, if we move towards a separated church and state, or you know, synagogue and state, whatever you want to call it, you know, many Jews are, gonna, are not going to embrace these values at all. And then at least religious people feel living in a very secular state, which would be very hard for us. So this is, this is like a, you know, this is, this is the challenge. But there is a value to someone choosing to be religious. Why are there so many Jews that don't know about being religious and don't know about Judaism? They don't know anything. It's a very, it's a very, it's a very sad reality. It's a very good question, a very sad reality. I, I, Oh, there's, you know, this Israeli school system is really flawed. That's, that's one part of it. Number two is that I don't think we've done a good enough job of telling our story. Um, well, they, they, don't, uh, they don't, I think it's hard to be a religious Jew in today's day and age. There are a lot of things luring us towards, we're not secular Zionism, just secular values. Right? Yeah, I mean, think about what we're up against. We're up against YouTube and TikTok and Netflix. Right? Do you know what Netflix's greatest competition is? No, what's Netflix? What's Netflix? You are a very holy Jew, Leia. It's <laughs> I know what Netflix is. Sometimes I even watch it. I never know what to watch on. I don't think there's anything, there's nothing like actually good, but. Sometimes some documentaries are good. It's a what? Internet subscription. You can subscribe to the service. And they, uh, and, and for your subscription, you have a, a tremendous variety of movies and television yeah, shows. Yeah, you don't need to watch, you don't need to rent movies anymore. You just have everything on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. So the, um, anyway, so the, the, you know what Netflix's biggest competition is? Sleep. Sleep. The people need to sleep. People didn't sleep. They would watch an extra eight hours of Netflix a day. And you know what our competition is? TikTok and Netflix and YouTube and 24-hour breaking news and uh, all this stuff. 
and Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and uh, right, no end to this stuff. Sports and sports and soccer and right, you got a lot of competition out there. I, I and this beautiful country for Tulum. Oh, that's that's not a pro- I don't have a problem with people going to live in there. Okay, but fine, you know, and, and no Sunday off, and you know, all these things, and, you know. But uh, it, it, listen, we have to be honest. It's not so easy to be a from Jew. You have to work hard at it. I think the I think, I think the joy is way over. You know, the, the benefits are, are far exceed the the, the challenges. But it's but it's not a simple thing. It is so special, but if you haven't experienced it, if you haven't tasted it, we could have arguments, philosophical arguments from here to, you know, times of Mashiach. People haven't tasted Shabbat. And it's a shame that we need to do more to help Jews taste Shabbat. That's what I think about when I walk to Shul on Shabbat and I see people driving their cars and things. Yeah, I feel they're they're losing out. They're losing out, but we need to do a better job also of of exposing them to it. Correct. Okay. Um, shared fate means an inability to rebel against fate. It is, as with the tragedy of Jonah the prophet, about the lack of alternatives to escape the God of the Jews. And God hurled the great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship was about to break apart. Shared destiny means having free will to strive for a goal, a decision freely willed to be sanctified to an ideal, and a yearning and longing for the master of the universe. Instead of the blind fate that pursued him, Jonah in the end chose the exalted destiny of the God of Israel. I am a Jew, and I hear the Lord. The God of the heaven. Anyone know the song? It's a good song. Now, uh, again, fate is something that you're forced into. Destiny is something you choose. Albeit, even in the experience of shared destiny, there's an element of separateness. But the apartness of destiny is totally different both in character and experience. It is not the negative sentiment that Balaam, Balaam, uh, Balaam foresaw in this prophecy of they are people which dwells alone. But rather the special awareness that Moses promised Israel in the last few hours before his death. And Israel shall dwell in safety, separate and secure by the fountain of Jacob. You can choose to be alone or you could be alone because you have no other choice. Right? There's a big difference between those two things. In truth... Uh, yeah, yeah. In truth, this self-isolation is nothing but the aloneness of a glorious, strong, holy, and sacred existence. It is, it's self-isolation. It is the isolation expressed in the singularity of the people in its holy self-image and unique existential experience. The Rebbe is saying we should choose to be alone. We should not be forced to be alone. Right? How many Jews, if they would just let them into the, uh, the, the, the sport club, and the, uh, you know, the beach club would run towards these things. And they did run towards these things. You know how assimilated German Jewry was in the time of the Holocaust? All they wanted to do was to be German. What was it? All they wanted to be was to be German. And Hitler came up with, an, with a theory of racism that prevented even the Jews who were so, you know, so, uh, you know, religiously German even they weren't accepted. So it was, a, it was a racial issue. It wasn't about a cultural issue, right? Okay, we have to choose. We have to come to a place where we're choosing to be alone. Avraham Avinu is a very good example. Avraham chooses 
to be separate. He could have joined other people. Lot goes and joins Sodom, right? Avram chooses distinction, chooses to live at the edge, separate from everyone else in Eretz. So he still cares about them. He's still willing to fight for for the the four kings and you know and, and Sodom against the four kings. He's, he's engaged, he's involved, but separate, distinct. Okay? It is loneliness that creates an individual spiritual personality. It is loneliness that demonstrates man's honor and his aloofness. It is the solitude of Moses, whose exalted spirit and sublime vision the people did not comprehend. It is the solitude of Elijah and the other prophets. It is the solitude of which Abraham spoke to his attendants when he said, You sit here with a donkey, and the lad and I will go to that place, and we shall worship. Emphasis added. Meaning we're separate from you. Solitude. Moshe is wandering in the Midbar of Midian. That's how we find Hashem. Right? Shepherding is, a, is the calling of the prophets of Israel, of the leaders of Israel. When you're in solitude, you seek out God. It's about doing your own thing, not always conforming, not always being following the herd and the masses. While man's isolation is a destructive feeling of inferiority that expresses self-negation. Okay, now I'll just mention something about when he says, you and the lads shall stay here. He's, it's more significant according to the Rav. These are the Na'arim who accompany him to the Akedah. He's saying, you, you stay here because you cannot possibly understand this Akedah experience. This is a unique experience for the Jewish people. You can't comprehend it. This is beyond your, your comprehension. You stay here. Okay? That's what he says to his, uh, to his Na'arim. Okay? Now, the... Um, okay. The, um, you know, the, um, now, let's continue. While man's isolation is destructive feeling and inferiority that expresses self-negation, the solitude of man testifies to his greatness and sanctity that hovers in the recesses of his unique awareness. Isolation robs man of his inner peace. Loneliness bestows upon man security. Self-esteem, yeah, loneliness versus uh, aloneness. Self-esteem, significance, and confidence. Separate and secure. Judaism has always believed, as we said at the outset, that man has it within his power to take fate into his own hands and shape it into the destiny of free life. It's life full of meaning and safe, saturated with joy of living, turning isolation into aloneness and disparagement into significance. For this reason, Judaism places so great an emphasis on the principle of free will. And for this reason, Judaism is so, so appreciates human intellect, which has within it its power to free man from his enslavement to nature and allow him to rule over his environment and its blind circumstances and subjugate it to, to his will. The community of Israel is obligated to use this free will in all facets of life, and especially for the good of the state of Israel. If secular Zionism in the end comes to understand that the establishment of the state of Israel is not weaken the paradox of the Jewish aloneness, but on the contrary, that the incomprehensible state of I shall take you unto me as a people has become even more pronounced in the international area, it must ask itself the age-old question. What is your occupation? From where do you derive? And from what people do you come? This is the question that Secretary Zionism must ask itself. The question is asked in any event, if not by the Jew, then by the Gentile. We must answer with pride that we fear the Lord, the God of the heavens. We are a people of not military might, not the F-35, not the, uh, you know, the Iron Dome and the Iron Beam, 
and the uh, you know the Merkava thing. No, we are a people of an Eurasian mind. We fear God. Our historical obligation today is to raise ourselves from a people to a holy nation. From the covenant of Egypt to the covenant of Sinai. Imagine if instead of being labeled as a certain nation, we were known as the holy nation. The upright and moral nation. I'm not saying that we don't do many things that are upright and moral. I'm not saying that we don't have that to some degree. Is the Tzadzvagan on Israel is hands down. No one is even if it's anywhere close in terms of, you know, the ethics, the level of morality that Saul demonstrates in the midst of war. It's no a written code. You no know other nation is even within... No one's even close. Do you know what the Earth calls it? It's a written... No, I know, I know. It's, no. it's documents. Torah and Eshek. Torah and And sometimes it hurts us. I have to be honest with you. Okay. Okay, sometimes it really hurts us. America is second best. Still far away. Okay? No other nation in the world is even, is even close. Okay? Alright, so, okay. From a, imagine if we were known, instead of being known as a startup nation, we were the whole nation. That's what we need to strive for. That's what I, I dream and wish for. From a compelled existence to an original way of life, permeated with morality and religious principles that transcends history. We must go from being an encampment to being a nation. The task of a religious vision is to fuse the two covenants, the covenant of Egypt and the covenant of Sinai, the covenant of fate and destiny, the iso- of isolation and loneliness. This task entails self-perfection by suffering, the outpouring of loving kindness brought about by combining all the elements of the nation, uniting them in one community, a nation unique in the land, and the readiness to pray for one's friend and to feel his joy and his grief. The goal of this self-repair is a purposeful consecration of self and the ascent to the mountain of God. One great goal unites us all. A single exalted vision captures our hearts. One to our written world directs us all to a unified end. The fulfillment of the vision of aloneness and the vision of the sanctity of an encampment-made people that ascends to the level of community nation and ties it, it's a lot, to the destiny that was proclaimed to the world in the words of our ancient father Abraham. And I and the lad shall go unto that place and shall worship God in return to you. And we're going to go forward to Har Moriah. Me and Yitzchak Adam says, Alone, leaving, you know, but distinct, recognizing, embracing our unique destiny and share faith. And with this, we conclude. The route is cold, but deep. Okay. Wow. What an incredible piece of work. What a blessing to be able to study this work together.